Never gone skydiving. Uh, once, when I was on a road trip with my brother, we were driving through the great state of Virginia. We were not in the fancy parts of Virginia. We were in the sticks, where you can kind of hear banjos playing if you listen closely enough. And uh, we saw a sign for skydiving for $50. And so I said, oh, that's definitely a good deal. Uh, let's go and let's do it. And we got there, we, we kind of looked into it, but realized my brother was just a few months shy of being 18, and so, bummer, we weren't allowed to go. So, at the time I was a little bummed, but I, looking back, it's probably a good thing, because if I'm going to jump out of a plane, I want to know that whoever packed the parachute got paid a little bit more than $50. <laughs> Later, when Ashley and I were expecting our first child, Ace, um, a friend of mine asked me to go skydiving with him. He had just done it, and he had fallen in love with it, and he told me at the 4th of July picnic at the time we were gathering in Central Park, he said, Caleb, you have never lived until you've gone skydiving. And I said, I said, Noel, listen, if I die skydiving, then Ashley is going to kill me. So <laughs> I told him I would consider it when things settled down a little bit, and uh, I've never gone. So I've never gone skydiving, but today, as we go through our text, we're going to do something a little different than we've been doing for the rest of the summer. Most Sundays, I do my best to give a brief description of every sentence in the chapter. I try to at least focus on everything enough that you'll get a sense of it and have an awareness of what's there. Today, what we're going to do is we are going to go skydiving in this passage together, and that's, this is what I mean. First, we're going to get a real quick flyby. We're just going to fly over the passage. That means I'm going to read it to you in its entirety, so we'll, we will see from a 30,000-foot perspective exactly what is there. Secondly, we're then going to strap on our parachute. And what I mean by that is we are going to learn how to use a few hermeneutical tools that are going to help us to safely navigate challenging prophetic passages like this one. And then what we're going to do is we're going to jump out of the plane, and just like you do when you jump out of a plane, we are going to fall fast through this passage. We are going to quickly examine and take in some of the broad strokes of the chapter, but just like in skydiving, we're moving fast enough that we're not going to linger too long. And then finally what we're going to do is we're going to pull the, the ripcord, and we are going to take our time gliding down to one particular point about one particular thematic element of this chapter, and we are going to aim to see what I believe is the most important thing that is presented to us here in these verses. So, if you will join me on this journey as we begin our flyby by following along in your own copy of the scriptures as I read to you Isaiah chapter 60. This that I'm about to read to you is the most valuable thing that you will hear all day. This is God's word. The word of the Lord says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. 
All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me. The ships of Tarshish first to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, And all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have forsaken, been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations, and you shall nurse at the breast of kings. And you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron, I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall be no more, shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall no more be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall be all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. This is the word of the Lord. Now today, as, just as I would if I were going to jump out of a plane, I'm going to now ask the Lord's favor. I'm going to pray. But the reason I'm going to pray over this passage is because we cannot and will not hear or follow through with what we are commanded in this passage. We will not trust unless it is the Lord who opens the ear and gives us the faith to believe it and to live it. So let's pray. Our God in heaven, we ask that today you would please utilize this passage as one that would be a convicting force in the life of anyone here who has become complacent with walking in darkness. Whether they are an unbeliever who has never yet opened their eyes to the salvation that is available in Jesus Christ, 
whether they have never had their ears uh, been opened by your spirit to hear the truth. I pray, God, if that is the case, you would do that great work of salvation in the heart today. And God, I pray that if there is anyone in the room who is a believer in Jesus Christ but has fallen into temptation and they have fallen sway to the wilds of sin, I pray, God, that today would be a day when you, with your great love, call them back to the light and that they would go. And I pray that today, for those who love you and those who know you, there would be great joy and there would be great hope that we find in the promises of Isaiah chapter 60. We ask, God, that this would be a force for hope in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For the next few minutes, we're going to consider a couple of hermeneutical principles that are going to help us understand how to interpret prophecy. And this is really, really important because for the rest of the book of Isaiah, we are going to find prophecies that utilize and require these same tools. So what we're going to do is we are going to, just like a parachute, help you jump out of a plane with confidence. We're going to strap on these tools so that you can go through these passages with confidence. There are three main particular principles that I would like to show you this morning. The first one is obvious symbolism. Prophecies in both the Old and New Testaments are usually prophecies that contain both literal and figurative aspects. One of the ways that people often get into trouble is by attempting to understand a prophecy as if it is either 100% literal or 100% figurative. Usually it is neither of those cases, and the problem is it's difficult to know when things are supposed to be understood figuratively or when they are to be understood literally. However, the, the prophets often help us out by providing an absurd metaphor or an incongruent word picture to reveal that we are to understand that the portion of that passage is to be read figuratively. Let me give you a couple examples, because everything I just said, I feel like I might have just lost a few. Let me give you a couple of examples. First of all, in the book of Revelation, we read about the great evil one who will one day come, and he refers to him as a dragon with seven heads that will come up out of the sea. Or we hear about a woman in Zechariah chapter 2 and 4 who is flying in a basket. These are images that are intended to be symbolic. They reveal something that is true and real, but there is not going to be a literal beast, a dragon who arises out of the ocean that has seven heads like some ancient Greek mythical animal. Nor is there going to be a woman literally floating in a basket that will then be carried away by the winds. These are intended to reveal to us that those passages are symbolic. Our passage today holds a few of these symbolic markers, revealing that we are dealing with a good amount of figurative language. For example, in verse 16, it tells us that we are going to nurse at the breast of kings. How do we know that's not literal? Let's just count some ways. For a number of reasons, we know this is not literal. First of all, that would be a punishment, not a blessing. Secondly, that is not how adult humans eat. And also, most obviously, kings are male. Now, regardless of the way that our culture is shifting and trying to say otherwise, men are men, women are women, and the language that is used around them is to remain male and female. 
I recently went and saw the new Thor movie, and in it there is a female character who is referred to as a king. She is not a king. It is not possible for her to be a king. She is not a man, therefore she cannot be king. But yet he speaks of a king in feminine terminology here. So obviously there is something symbolic taking place. And also, most obviously, on top of that, kings do not breastfeed. Therefore, we can look at this passage and we can say, yes, this is certainly something that is intended to be read symbolically. Realizing that we are working here with a rich and beautiful poetic metaphor helps us to know that we are looking at deeper meaning, not just the first glimpse meaning of the passage. So regarding verse 16, what we were just discussing, it doesn't indicate a literal event that will take place with us. Rather, it indicates that there will be kings who care for your needs like a mother cares for her children. Just like babies are not required to work, like we have Augustine, we do not require her to put in labor in order for her to have sustenance. Whereas our older children, we might say to them, look, you have responsibilities in the house. You have to do some chores. You have to clean your room. You have to make your bed. And that's part of your responsibilities living here. With Augustine, she's three months old. We do not say things like that to her. And similarly, he is saying to you, you will have nothing that you will have to do in order to gain your reward. And that is the tool that we are using here the tool of obvious symbolism that points us to looking for the deeper meaning in the picture being presented. The second tool that I want you to understand is grammatical in nature. Now, I realize there are some people in the room that have an allergic reaction whenever I use the word grammar or begin to speak about grammar, but this concept of studying grammar is really vital when studying the Bible. I encourage you to stick with me on this because God has chosen to communicate to us using words. And therefore, we should do our best to understand how God designed these words to work together so that we can best understand what his ideas were that he is presenting to us. Otherwise, what we end up doing is we end up reading something and coming away with a God of our own imagination and promises that have not been intended rather than the God of Scripture and the good rewards that he has actually promised. So the tool that I want you to have in your toolkit here is to understand what the theologians refer to as the prophetic perfect tense. Now, whether you know this or not, you actually use the perfect tense all the time when you're speaking. The perfect tense is just something that presents a completed action. For example, Victoria Amorelli had a baby. Praise God. That's in the perfect tense. It is a completed action. Luke Amorelli has told everyone. Praise God. That is in the perfect tense. It is a completed action. And here is why this matters. It matters because in the prophecies, particularly and especially in the rest of this book, you are going to find many occasions when the prophets are going to write in the perfect tense about something that has not yet happened. They are going to write about a completed action even though that action has not yet been completed. They are writing about the future as though it is the past. So no matter what language you're reading, that can be confusing to someone. So what I want you to understand is how they are intending you to read and digest this information. The prophetic perfect tense is used by the prophets in order to hammer home a promise. Here's what they will do. It's like saying, even though this is not going to happen for thousands of years, it is as good as done. 
One scholar explained it as if the prophets were temporarily allowed to stand at the end of time and to look back over history and rejoice in what they've seen God accomplish. And we can see this prophetic perfect tense quite a bit for the rest of this book, and you can see it clearly in verses 1 and 2. In verse 1 it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Now, at the time of Isaiah's writing these words, this has not yet occurred. In fact, it would not occur for another 700 years when Jesus arrived. But it is spoken about with full assurance in the perfect tense because God is expressing the unchangeable and unstoppable nature of his promise. This is as good as done. Now, that's the prophetic perfect tense, and you really need to understand that to grasp what's going on. But there's a third tool that I want you to also use today. It's similar to the previous, but with a twist. Don't worry, this one's less grammatical. Rather, this one is more about timing. So what I want to do just briefly is show you four distinct events in this chapter and show you how they are presented. In verse 2 we read, For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. Merry Christmas in July, This is about the birth of Jesus. And then we jump down to verse 9 where it says, For the coastland shall hope for me, and the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar. Now, this verse and others surrounding it and like it are about how the church is going to draw its children out of every part of the globe. It is a missional statement about the nature of the kingdom being from every tribe and tongue and nation. This is about the church. And then verse 12, For the nation and the kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. Well, this verse and those like it are about the final judgment that God will pour out on his enemies. And then verse 20, Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Well, what is this passage about? This is about those who are uh, going to be in heaven and enjoying the Lord there forever. So we have the birth of Christ, the age of the church, and then we have the uh, people who are going to experience judgment on earth, and then we're going to experience uh, those who experience joy in heaven. Those are four very different events that occur at different times. But when you read this chapter, it could easily sound like all of these things happen at the same time. And this is a very common challenge when studying biblical prophecies, but let me see if I can help you think of it or remember it in this way. The other day, our family was at the beach, and it was, uh, the sun had gone down, and the moon was in the process of coming up over the horizon, and it was a strawberry moon, a full moon. This was back in the month of June, and it was just the biggest, reddest, most beautiful moon you've ever seen, and it was arising over the horizon, and we could see it making a line down the, the water all the way towards us as we saw the light reflecting off of those waves. And there, as I was looking, there were several things that I saw. Standing there in the dark, I could see a buoy bobbing up and down in the water. And then I could also see near that somewhere, it appeared, there's a, there's a ship. And then farther out, I could see the horizon. And then past that, I could see the moon. But from my perspective, it appeared as though they were all directly next to one another. It's like they were in a line. They were sitting next to one another. But in reality, they were all very far apart. And sometimes prophecies like Isaiah 60 are challenging Because there are so many promises about future events that appear to be stacked right on top of each other, 
but in reality, they're separated by centuries. So to Isaiah, all of these promises looked like that horizon I was seeing. And these events appeared so close they could touch, but just like those things that I was viewing in the waves and the, the buoy and the boat, just like them, the closer you get to them, the more you can acknowledge and realize the distance between them. So these tools are going to help us, these three, to function like a parachute now, helping us to safely make our way through the rest of this book together. So let's take the plunge. Now let's get the big picture view as I am going to do the most rapid overview of a chapter of the Bible I have ever given you from this pulpit. First, let's see that the big picture, picture of this chapter is that God is promising that he is going to fix all the things that we have broken. Where we have produced darkness, he promises to bring light. Where we have received persecution, he promises to bring blessing. Where we have spent our entire lives seeking to divide, he promises that in his glorious kingdom there will be unity for his people forever. And where kings had plotted in vain against the Lord and against his anointed, now at the end of all things they will have to bow the knee to him and will have no choice but to serve him. And where our lives are short and full of trouble, he promises to give us eternal life, free from heartache, free from despair, and gloriously free from sin. That's our rapid overview. This is good news. And as I promised, we are now ready to pull the cord and release the chute so we can zone in on one particular theme in this chapter and take the remainder of our time slowly gliding down to it. The one main thing that I want you to see here is the beautiful promise regarding light. The Bible is full of light and darkness imagery. Light is the very first thing that God called into existence on the very first day. From that time forth, every time we see this, light is being paralleled with the perfect work of the Lord, and night and darkness is being paralleled with the sinful deeds of mankind and the evil one. And Jesus explains this very thing to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 19 through 20. He says, The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Now, there is probably no sharper contrast in the physical world that we can observe than the contrast of light and darkness. Where light exists, darkness has to flee. They cannot inhabit the same place at the same time. When you turn on the light switch, what happens? It does not take time for the darkness to slowly mosey its way out of the room. All right, I get it. It's my time is over. Now it's time for me to go. No, you turn on that light and the room is filled with light. And Jesus told Nicodemus that we prefer our darkness rather than his light. Why? Because our deeds are evil. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 2 describes the entire world as being under the weight of this blanket of darkness. He says, for behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. Last week in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 9, we heard of the miserable position of the Israelites that they were in. They said, therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. This is the exact same imagery that the Apostle John picks up on in John chapter 1, verses 4 through 10. Now, this is an extended passage, but it's so important. I want you to stick with me as we walk through this together. 
It says of Jesus, in him was life. And the life was what? It was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus came into the world to bring light into our darkness. He came to deliver us from captivity, not only of the dark that exists around us, but the love that we have for the darkness, the proclivity we have for darkness, the desire we have to run from light and run into darkness. Everyone in this room began as one who not only lived in the darkness, but loved the darkness. It's really easy to look out at the world out there, and we can see that it's dark. There's violence, there's war, there's bloodshed, there's school shootings, there are liars, there are thieves, there are criminals of all shapes and sizes, there's sexual immorality that abounds, there's lust and pornography and adultery and fornication and sinful divorce. These things are commonplace now in our society. And we look around and it's really easy to say, yes, this is a dark world with a lot of dark things in the hearts of a lot of dark uh, hearts of people. It's really easy to see that there's darkness out there. But we are masters of pretending that there's no darkness in our own hearts. We justify our actions. We measure everyone against a higher standard than we judge ourselves. The darkness was not just out there. It was in here. And that's why this prophecy of Isaiah is so sweet and precious. And when Jesus did come, he made an even bigger promise than just to be the light that arrives. John chapter 8, verse 12, we find that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. That's pretty much what we've just been hearing. But he follows it up by saying, Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you want to have that light of life? Well, let me ask you, have you followed Jesus? Do you have that light of life? Have you trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins? If not, I plead with you today, do not let this any longer. See that your deeds are evil and let the word of God, let the spirit of God expose them and love the grace of God that covers them. See the glorious light of Christ and be saved. And I will say to you, if you are a Christian, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 tells us exactly how you got here. It says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and we could take a long time to break that down. But the simple reality being given here, if we just want to look at the basic element of it is, you have no light of the knowledge of the glory of God unless you have found it and seen it in the face of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14 puts it this way, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from what? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So as we continue to make our way through to our landing point this morning, considering this concept and theme of light, what I want you to do is I want you to see two specific applications. First of all, he is teaching us to reflect his light. In verse 1 of our chapter today, it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. 
He is telling you, rise and shine. That's what my mom used to say when she would wake me up for school when I was a kid. Rise and shine. Well, he is telling you, arise and shine. And he is telling you that in parallel, in comparison to the way Jesus is going to rise and shine. Wow, that's a big task. That's a pretty big deal. This is very important because you can't do that. You have no ability to do what he is commanding you to do here on your own. You cannot display the glory of God without help. But the good news is that God always provides what God demands. That's why Jesus makes demands of people that would otherwise be absurd. Think about this. Jesus told people on multiple occasions who could not walk, get up and walk. He said to somebody who is lame, go pick up that mattress and carry it home with you. Walk away. If anyone else said something like that, it would be a cruel joke. And he says, rise and walk. He says to blind people, see. And they do. This is incredible because on their own they have no power to do that. But that man could pick up his bed and walk. That man could open his eyes and see because the command that Jesus gave them, he empowered them to actually carry it out. Jesus once brought a little girl back from the dead. And he said to that little girl, Talitha Kumi, which literally means, little girl, arise. If anyone else walked into that room and said, little girl, arise, she would still lay there dead. But because Jesus has power to give her life, she had the power to obey. And she did. She got up and she rose and they gave her food to eat. And this is really important because God is now calling you and I to shine as light in the world. He has said something very similar to this as he preached the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. He said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Wait a minute. Didn't Jesus say in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world? And now he's saying to them in the Sermon on the Mount, You are the light of the world? Yes. Christian, are you reflecting the light of Christ? Are you displaying the light of Jesus to the world? Are you walking like him? Or when the people of this world look at you, do they see the same worldly tendencies and the darkness that they see in their own hearts? Ephesians chapter 5 verse 8 says, At one time you were darkness. Not just that you were in darkness or that you walked in darkness or you lived in darkness. Consider that wording. At one time you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. This is your identity. Now live it out. Are you walking in the light? Are you living as though you've been saved out of the kingdom of darkness and that your new identity is in Jesus Christ? And are you reflecting his character? 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-9 through 9 helps us to examine our hearts in this area. It says, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Christian, this is great news. You have the power to obey. You have the power to walk in the light. You can do that because he has given you the strength to do so. And these verses remind us that sin is never going to be completely eradicated from us. If, any, if anyone says he's without sin, then he's a liar. But it does teach us that we can walk in the light, and it tells us what to do if we fall short of walking in the light. What do we do? We go to him in confession to be cleansed. Church, let us walk in the light as he is in the light, just like the Lord commands us in Isaiah chapter 60. Arise and shine. The second thing that I want to see today is that we are called to delight in the hope of heaven. God makes extensive promises about heaven in this chapter. And those are not in the Bible without purpose. These promises throughout the scriptures are found here because he desires for you to know that there is a time coming when there will be no more darkness. That this darkness that seems so pervasive in our culture around you will one day come to an end. And you will never again experience any darkness from the world around you or from your own heart. Isaiah chapter 60 verses 19 through 20 says, The sun shall be no more, your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. There's a new light that's going to be here. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Notice that this is the exact promise that we found in the last chapter of our Bible that we read earlier, Revelation chapter 22. This is how the story ends. We already read a larger portion of this passage from our New Testament reading, but let's land our skydiving jump as we come now to our landing place in Revelation 22, verses 4 through 5. It speaks of what we will experience when we arrive at our final destination in heaven with him. It says, They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. And they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light." And they will reign forever and ever. I think we, we think too often of heaven. We consider it so lightly. We get so entangled with the present that we forget sometimes the promise of our future. Uh, brothers and sisters, this should provide you with joy unspeakable and hope unshakable. With that, I would ask that we pray now and ask the Lord to give us that joy and to give us that hope. Let's pray. Father God, I ask now, as we have heard your word, that the Spirit of God would do the great work of applying it to our hearts and causing us to walk it out. Oh Lord, I do pray that if there is anyone in the room who has not yet seen the glory of, of God as revealed in the face of Jesus Christ, that you would cause your light to shine out of darkness and into their hearts today. And God, I pray for everyone who does know you that we would walk in the light as he is in the light. And God, I pray that we would have our eyes fixed towards the future, that we would see that your promises are true and they are coming and that we have reason for hope in Jesus Christ where we are going to experience his love and his radiating joy forever. We pray, Lord, that now you would give us that great joy, that great hope in the present so that we might look forward to the future promises that we have been given. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.